Today's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one shall wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. From Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We've been studying the Ten Commandments, and we come today to the commandment that deals with marriage and sex. It's the seventh commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery. And to explore this commandment together, we're looking at a related passage from the New Testament. This is from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. And what I'd like to do is I want to try to touch on three thoughts. First, I want to talk about um, God's purpose for sex. Then I want to talk about our problem with sex. And, and then I want to just begin to explore a solution to that problem. I say begin to explore because this is a topic that's way beyond what can be tackled in one sermon. My hope is that this could start conversations and, and prayers and seeking among us as a church as, as we look at this important topic. So let's, let's talk first about God's purpose for sex. You'll notice at the end of verse 3 in 1 Thessalonians 4, the, the apostle says you should avoid, and then he says, sexual immorality. And, um, you know, what does he mean by that phrase, sexual immorality? Well, the, the word in Greek that's translated sexual immorality, it's actually one word, a word that will sound familiar to you. It's the word porneia. And in the first century, it sounds like pornography, right? So in the first century, the, this word porneia, it was just kind of, a, um, it was a catch-all word. And it just, it referred to any sexual behavior that takes place outside the context of a marital relationship between a man and a woman. Just, just refers to any, any expression of our, of our sexual desires or sexual behavior outside of a heterosexual marriage. And this was the main way that the New Testament writers would talk about sexual sin. You don't usually find them kind of listing out and enumerating all the you know, possible permutations of, of human behavior that might be uh, wrong in a sexual manner. They, just, they would use this kind of catch-all word to describe any kind of behavior that's outside the context of marriage and say that this is wrong in the eyes of God. I mean, Jesus on, on this subject, he even went so far as to say that to look lustfully, to look with um, kind of lingering sexual desire at someone that you're not married to, he said that's a violation in heart of, of the seventh commandment. So um, this is what they would say. They would say any behavior outside, the, outside of God's purpose, God's intention for sex is, is what we should avoid. And so the question you have to ask is, all right, what is, God's, what is God's purpose? What is God's intention for sex? And the Bible teaches us that God designed sex to be an intimate expression of love and tenderness between a man and a woman who have pledged a lifetime of commitment 
to each other in the covenant of marriage. Uh, you read about this in Genesis chapter 2, the very first place that marriage is not only introduced but, but defined for us in the Bible. Genesis 2 verse 24 says, For this reason a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That, that, that one flesh union between two people, husband and wife, God, God says that this is sacred. Not just because it takes place in a church. It doesn't matter if it takes place in a church. Any marriage is sacred in the eyes of, of the Creator. And the seventh commandment, is, is, it's designed to protect that sacred union and, and to tell us that, that sexual intimacy is, is to take place within the context of, of marriage. Now, let me ask you, how do you, think, how do you think your coworkers would react to that teaching or your classmates at school? A lot of people in, in the modern culture would say, this is kind of repressive to teach this. You know, to, to confine sex to marriage and to define marriage as a heterosexual union, they would say that's just, that is restrictive, it's homophobic, it's, it's destructive to human flourishing, it's just inhuman. Um, one psychologist writing a couple of years ago in Psychology Today, he, he wrote this, um, this is a little extreme, but I think he ex expresses kind of the view of, of our culture. He says, nothing, nothing inspires murderous mayhem in human beings more reliably than sexual repression. Denied food, water, or freedom of movement, people will get desperate, and some may lash out at what they perceive as a source of their problems. But if expression of sexuality is thwarted, the human psyche tends to grow twisted into grotesque, enraged perversions of desire. This rage is generally directed at helpless vic victims who are sacrificed to the sick gods of guilt, shame, and ignorant pride. Let me ask you, do you think that's true? Do you think Mother Teresa ran around in some kind of murderous mayhem because she was celibate? Do you think, do you think Jesus was a grotesque, twisted human being? See, this is what some, at least some in our culture, would want us to believe, but the, the Bible says something very, very different than this. Yes, the Bible does restrict sexual intimacy for the context of marriage, but the Bible says that rather than being designed to crush us, this is actually for our good, whether, whether we're married or not. So notice what the apostle says, verse 3 again, in this context where he's, he's calling these people to sexual self-control. He says this, verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, that word sanctified sounds very churchy. You know, it, here's what it means. It means to be made holy. God wants to make you holy. And that, listen, that does not mean make you into a goody two-shoes, all right? What is holy? Holiness in the Bible, it, this Holiness is the most transcendent, awe-inspiring, glorious aspect of the nature of God. In, in the Bible, it, there are certain places where we, see, we read of angelic beings, um, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, angelic beings getting a glimpse of the holiness of God. And in the Bible, when angels see the holiness of God, they immediately cover their faces. They tremble with fear. They burst into song. They're, over, they're overwhelmed with this kind of joy. So holiness is it's something beyond our comprehension. It, it, is, it is the most transcendent attribute of God. And 
Paul says, listen, it is God's will to make you holy. Do you understand this, believer? God wants to make you glorious. He wants to make you angels covering their face when they see you. He, 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 so when Paul talks about um, sexual purity in the context of sanctification, he's not saying, well, this is going to crush you. This is going to thwart you. This is going to deprive you of, of your human expression. He's saying, do you understand what God is doing? God is making you glorious. He is sanctifying you. And, 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 and this is certainly true um, in the context of God's call on our lives to be men and women who trust him and follow into just a, a life of sexual wholeness and sexual purity. And that's, this is true, listen, whether God calls you to a lifelong exclusive commitment to one other person in the covenant of marriage, or, or whether God calls you to the quiet, confident dignity of, of self-controlled singleness. E either way, it, I just want you to trust this. It, God's desire is not to crush. It is for you to flourish. Um, Jackie Hill Perry is um, a, a Christian poet and speaker and author uh, who she left behind a life of lesbianism in her early, uh, as a young adult, to follow Jesus Christ. And, and she says that very often when, when she's counseling young Christians who are struggling with God's call, call to obedience in, in, in sexuality or in any other area of life, she will say, really, you know what? This, it all boils down to two questions. Do you believe God is good? And do you believe God is wise? Here, here's what she says. She says, I, I really want to make clear that God is both of those things, good and wise. He is both of those things and more. People think that God being Lord over their life is a foolish thing. They really do. They think autonomy is better and should be preferred, but I say no. Submit to God because it's the best decision you could ever make. Why? Because he's good. Why? Because he's wise. So everything that he has said is the best thing for you to do, and everything that he is is the best person for you to have. So God designed sex for marriage. And hear me, he intended this for our good. That's God's purpose for sex. Now, secondly, let me talk about our problem with sex. The apostle is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he's writing to these people about um, their need for sexual purity, avoid sexual immorality. Why, why did he write to them about this? Maybe he just had some extra um, page at the end, end of his letter. He had to fill in the space. He had nothing else to talk about. Why, why did he write this? You know the answer. He wrote this to them because they were struggling with sexual purity. And, and you should understand, this is not because this was a, a group of immature Christians. No, listen. Um, when you read the book of 1 Thessalonians, when I read the book of 1 Thessalonians, I say to myself, oh, I wish I had been part of that church. The, 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 the Thessalonians, these are among the most godly, spirit-filled Christians you read about in the whole New Testament. So here are some things that the apostle says to the Thessalonians. Chapter 1, he says, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, we know that God has chosen you 
Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. People everywhere tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. In chapter 2, he writes this to them. He says, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you. And then in chapter 3, he said this to them. We are encouraged about you because of your faith. You are standing firm in the Lord. So this letter, guys... This was written to devout, godly, spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ. And guess what? They were struggling with sexual purity. They, they were struggling with this. Deborah, Deborah Hirsch, a Christian author, wrote this. She said, every human being on this planet is sexually broken. Everybody's orientation is disoriented. Not one is excluded. So in this church of really godly Christians, they loved Jesus. They were struggling. Does that surprise you? I'm going to tell you, I have now over 30 years experience as a pastor and over 57 years experience as a sinner, all right? And uh, it does not surprise me at all that Christians would struggle. Listen, listen. I, Christians who really, 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 is that enough reallys for you? Christians who really love Jesus find themselves struggling in ways that they just, it, it, it just, it tears them up inside. Some will struggle to keep their thoughts pure. They're thinking things in church they don't even want to think. So many will, will, will struggle with just this relentless pull of pornography. Do you know that um, today the average age of ex first exposure to pornography is 11 years old? For me, it was a lot younger than that. And many people, it just, it, 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 get, it gets, the, it's hooks into them in ways that it's, it, it is worse than the worst addiction you can imagine. Many, many Christians will find themselves really struggling to have a healthy view of sex at all because of the way that they were hurt by someone when they perhaps were a child. Some, some really God-fearing Christians will find themselves struggling with temptations they did not ask for. They can't, they can't understand why they feel themselves attracted to members of the same gender, and, and they struggle with that. And, and what I've learned as a pastor is that very often happily married Christians who if you ask them would say they're grateful to God for their spouse, will in inexplicably find their own heart wandering, being attracted to someone outside that covenant of marriage. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote this. I haven't yet met a Christian who, who can't um, relate to it. He wrote this in Romans 7. He said, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Every human being is, in some sense, sexually broken. We're not, listen, we're not all broken in exactly the same way, and we don't all struggle to the same degree. But guys, would you agree with me? We all struggle. Now, you, you, shouldn't, um, you shouldn't assume 
that because this is something we all struggle with, then therefore this must not be a very serious problem. This is not, listen, this, this is not like driving on the New York Thruway. You ever drive on a New York, New York Thruway? You know, it doesn't really matter if you're breaking the law, if you're speeding, because everyone's going 80 miles an hour as long as you know, you're not the fastest car out there. It doesn't really matter. This is not like that. This is a common struggle, but boy, this is a very serious one. Listen to what the apostle says. End of verse 6. He says, the Lord will, not might or could, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Verse 8, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So we all have this problem. God has created us and redeemed us and designed us, whether we're married or single, to live out in our lives a kind of sexual joy and integrity that brings honor to him. And we all struggle with that. Now, third point, what's a solution to that problem? Um, let me give you, these are kind of three words of, of pastoral counsel that I think arise from this passage. And I want to warn you that what I'm going to say right now will be overly simplistic, okay? As I said before, I, I just want to introduce us to begin to pray and talk about this subject. This is not something to be easily solved. But, but here are three words of, of, of pastoral counsel. How, how should we, as followers of Christ, um, pursue this kind of holiness and purity in our lives? Three, three thoughts. Manage your life. Manage your life. Seek real power, and then third, rejoice. So uh, quickly, manage your life. Look at verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4 says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now that, that verse is, uh, has puzzled translators for years. It's not the easiest verse to translate, but what it, however you translate it, it's clear that each one of us, every individual, we have a responsibility as individuals who follow Christ to learn how to live as sexual beings in ways that honor God. And, and you'll notice the main action, the apostle indicates, the main action involved in doing that, verse 3, is the word avoid. Avoid sexual immorality. The, the word avoid, it could be translated abstain from or, or reject. Or one, one, tra one version translates it stay away from, all right, sexual immorality. And when you read through the Bible, the, um, the most common counsel in Scripture that you'll find for people who are faced with, with sexual temptation, the most common counsel is run, stay away. Set up really healthy boundaries in your life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, this is in the context where he's, he's, he's telling us not to be lusting. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it away. Now, he didn't mean do that literally, but he did literally mean take radical steps to protect yourself from things that might ensnare you. The book of Proverbs says that if you, uh, this is metaphorical language, but it says if you know that a seductive person lives on a certain block, it says don't even walk down the street past their house. Go around the block, go another direction, stay away. 2 Timothy 2 verse 22 says flee 
run, flee youthful lusts. Now, here's, here's why that verse surprises me, because James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? The devil will, will run. But when it comes to sexual temptation, the apostle says, no, this time you run. Stay far away from it. So what these passages have in common is that they, they all teach us that a crucial aspect for any one of us learning to control our own way, our own body, in a way that is holy and honorable to God, we, we each need to learn to monitor, um, monitor our environment so, so that we're not needlessly exposed to temptation. So I wonder what that would look like for you. It might be different for each one of us. It might be that some Christians say, you know what? I got no business owning a smartphone. I, don't, I, I can live without one. Or, or getting rid of your computer or putting, putting filters on there. I, I've known people to put a filter in a computer and then give somebody else the password and say, don't you dare tell me what it is, right? Just to protect yourself. It might, it might mean breaking off a relationship that you know is not honoring to God. I've known believers to do that. I've never known one to express regret over doing it. Or it, it, it might mean, and I think for all of us, just being very thoughtful, very discerning in, in uh, decisions we make about our own consumption of entertainment. There's entertainment that probably every one of us should not be involved in, in viewing, right? Would you agree with that? So wh whatever it is, we have a responsibility, just each one, manage our own life now. Even though we have this personal responsibility, notice the apostle also says that as a congregation, we have a responsibility to help each other. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what he means in verse 6, but he says, In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. I, th I think he's just saying that as a congregation of broken people who've been called to follow Jesus, we need to, we need to really make sure that churches are safe places. I would say here's what that means. It means in, in the church, no one, no one should behave seductively. Would you agree with that? It would mean that in the church, no one should dress immodestly. It, it would mean that in the church, no one, no one of, among us should tolerate any kind of sexual abuse. And all of us should pray for and honor marriages. Right? So, so the apostle says this, avoid, stay away from sexual immorality. Each of you must learn to control your own body. So manage your life. Second, word of counsel. Seek real power. I mean, real power. No, notice how God is described at the very, very end of this passage. He is called, end of verse 8, God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I'm sure you've heard this before, I hope you have, that when you come to God with faith in Christ, the Spirit of the living God himself comes to live inside you. He is our power for this moral, spiritual fight. You don't have to fight this, you don't have to fight this battle alone. You shouldn't try to. You, you shouldn't rely on your own strength or wisdom. The, the God who calls you to sexual purity, he is the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. And, and so seek his power. Now, quickly, how do you do that? One word answer, prayer. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks him. So let me just ask you, in your struggle, whatever it might be, are you praying 
You can be very honest with God. You know that. God's not, God's not going to be embarrassed by whatever you tell him. And just sincerely say, God, I, I feel overwhelmed. Will you empower me? You might ask a few brothers or sisters, will you pray with me that the Holy Spirit will be the source of my power? So manage your life, seek real power, and then finally, hear this. Rejoice. Rejoice in what? Christian, rejoice in God's love for you. Paul the Apostle wrote this passage to a group of Christians who were struggling with lust, struggling with temptation. Some of them perhaps were falling, stumbling, getting back up again. These, these were people who were struggling with this. And yet, did you notice how the Apostle refers to them? In this passage throughout the whole book, he calls them, you see it in, in, in verse 6, he calls them brothers and sisters. Don't, don't just breeze by that. He's talking to people who are sexually broken, sexually confused, struggling with sins. And he says, you're part of the family of God. Isn't, you say, well, how could that possibly be? Do you, isn't that what the gospel teaches us? The gospel tells us that when we come to God through faith in Jesus, as broken and messed up as we are, God says to us, he says, you are my Son, you are my daughter. Welcome to the family. This is your home. And as we continue to struggle, and maybe really struggle for years, do you know that? God never stops, never stops calling us his children. So can I ask you a favor as your pastor? Would you do this for me? If, if you're in the throes of some struggle with, with sexual temptation or sin, would you just, even for this week, every day of the week, believer, would you go look in the mirror, look at yourself, and say to yourself, you are a much-loved child of God. You're struggling, but you are a child of God. Now, why would learning to rejoice in the gospel help us so much? Because... Um, the struggle with sexual sin or temptation, oh my, the struggle with pornography or with same-sex attraction, it just, it just very often heaps so much shame on a person. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And that shame, the enemy, the enemy of your soul will use that to discourage you, to beat you up. To, to, he wants you to give up on following Christ. And you just need to feed your soul with this joy. I'm in the battle, but I am loved. I'm, I'm struggling right now, but I'm God's child. You rejoice in that. And that, what did Nehemiah say to the people? He said, the joy of the Lord will be your what? Your strength. Amen? Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, that your word talks to us about areas of life that we really long uh, to hear answers. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring your truth to bear in our life in a way that will lead each one of us down the road to that glorious, glorious holiness that you have purchased for us in Christ. And we thank you that every step of the journey, uh, because of Jesus, we never cease to be objects of your love. Amen.